You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series, Be Set Free, a study of the book of Exodus. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Would you please open with me in your Bibles to the book of Exodus, second book in the Bible. If you like to read the Bible on your phone, there are plenty of good apps out there. The one we suggest you use is the YouVersion Bible app. And the reason is because if you log in, you can actually uh, look for uh, our live notes that you, you know, follow along with the slides and get some other extra stuff in there as well to interact with the sermon. So the book of Exodus on Sunday mornings, we're studying through this book. And this book tells the story of how God set the people of Israel free from bondage and slavery and led them into a life of true freedom. And as we're studying this, we're looking at the parallels in our own lives and how God wants to set us free through Jesus. So we're going to begin this morning by reading our text, which comes from Exodus chapter 21, verses 1 through 6. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh year he shall go free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and the children shall be the masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, I love my wife and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever." This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to your word this morning, we are desiring to hear your voice. We're desiring to learn from you and put these things into practice, Lord, that we could have lives that honor you and, Lord, lives that are, are rich and healthy and full of joy. And we thank you, Lord, that that is your desire for us, to give us life abundantly. So this morning we ask, Lord, that you would help us to understand these, these words, especially this morning, Lord. These are some Words that at, the, at first seem very difficult to understand and really uh, get, and especially how do these apply to us. So we ask that you would give us insight into your word. You'd help us to put these things that we learn into practice, that we might live for you and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. How, how many of you have ever played uh, Bible roulette? Do you know what Bible roulette is? Bible roulette is that thing that you do where you're like, okay, God, I want you to speak to me. And so you grab the Bible and you just like close your eyes and you open it to a random page and you just put your finger down like this and then you open your eyes and you're like, all right, I'm going to read it and see what it says. Let's see, it's God, you know, he's going to give me a verse that I need to read. And uh, how many of you have done something like that before? And how, how often has it turned out that you do that and you're like, okay, if the ox gores a slave, a male or female slave, Then the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned to death. And you're like, well, I'm not really sure what to do with that. Um, I'm pretty sure that will never happen to me. Uh, So what are you trying to tell me, God? Does the ox represent something? Am I the ox? Well, what are you trying to say, God? Well, Well, maybe what God's trying to tell you, by the way, is that that's not a very good way to read the Bible. It's not a good way to study the Bible. Instead... It's much better to do like what we're doing here on Sunday mornings where you go through an entire book, you take things in context, you go through verse by verse. But today we're actually studying the chapter that contains a lot of verses like that one I just read you. Uh, you know, the book of Exodus is a really exciting book for the most part. 
right? Like, so it's a super exciting book. Like, rivers are turning into blood, bushes are catching on fire, the earth is shaking, God's speaking. It's amazing, right? The Red Sea splits in half. Uh, but then there's the other part of the book, and today that's the part of the book that we have come to. The book of Exodus, like I said, very exciting. Except for that other part of the book, uh, which is the part we come to today, which is a lot of laws and regulations and verses about like, what to do if your ox gores somebody's slave and uh, what to do with that. And it's really easy to say, wow, this stuff is kind of weird and I don't get it and it's not quite as exciting as the stuff that we you just read about. Uh, maybe why, we should just skip over this. Maybe say, Pastor Nick, can we just maybe skip over this, get to something, something else that's pretty exciting? But we're not going to do that. But here's the thing. I got to tell you this. I'm dead serious. This, surprisingly, is one of the sections that I've been most looking forward to teaching. I often find that those sections where you have to dig a little to find out, okay, what's this all about and how does this apply to me? Those are sometimes some of the richest texts for us to read. And I, and I believe that by the time we're done here this morning and, and even next week too, you're going to understand why I've been looking forward to these sections. And here, I'll just give you a, a hint. It's because you can't really appreciate Jesus. You can't fully understand the gospel or, or even what it means to be a Christian unless you understand the concepts that are being talked about here in this section. So hang with me and I'll show you what those are. The title of today's message is Free to be a Slave. Free to be a Slave. You know, whenever you study the Bible, there are two questions that you have to ask yourself about any given text. Just this, will, this will actually really help you as you study the Bible for yourselves as well. There are two questions you always want to ask. The first question is, what did this mean for them in their context of their time? What did this mean for them? And the second question you want to always ask is, now, how does that apply to us? How does that apply to us? So what does it mean for them, and how does that apply to us? And that's actually how we're going to break down this text today. What did it mean for them, and then how does that apply to us? So first of all, let's talk about this. What did this mean for them? I want you to picture a scene in your mind's eye. There's a wife. She's at home in the evening, and she's beaming with pride. She has a smile that reaches from ear to ear because her husband has been chosen for the job. He didn't apply for the job. Uh, he didn't even know that he was up for the job. But he was chosen for it by the community, by someone else. But for this wife, this just affirms everything. She's always known about her husband, always believed about her husband. And now finally he's getting the recognition which she knows that he's always deserved. That because he's a man of character and he has genuine faith in God. And he's a faithful man and he's a trustworthy man. And she's so proud of him. She's just beaming because now... Other people have recognized that about him too. People have been coming over all day to congratulate him on this appointment. And, and finally, now it's the end of the day and, and everybody's gone to bed and it's just the two of them there at home. And, and he's kind of got that look in his eye. He's never been a man of many words, but he's got that look in his eye where he's just kind of staring at stuff. And he's clearly, his mind is full of thoughts. And she asks him, what are you thinking about? And he says, I don't know if I can do this. And she says, oh, honey, I know you can do it. I, I, I know you'll be great at it, actually. Everyone knows that you're going to be great at it. That's why you were picked. But he says, look, I, I understand. This, there's a lot of responsibility here. Everybody in the community is going to be looking to me. Their lives and their livelihood are going to be in my hands. Because you see, today, this man, his name was on a list, and he was chosen to be a judge for the nation. For the first time in their history of their people, there is now an appointed office 
he will be the judge for the people and the people will bring their cases to him and he will, he will give them judgments and he will give them decisions. But, but he has no idea. How's he going to do this? What does he even do with that? How can he be sure that he'll make good decisions and good judgments and be faithful to the people and do a good job? You see, it's only been a few weeks since Moses was acting as judge for all the people. People would come to Moses with their issues and their conflicts and their cases and Moses would give them direction. He would tell them the will of the Lord for their situation. He would give them justice. But with two million people to care for, it wasn't a good system. I mean, there was a, mi- a line a mile long. You might have to wait weeks, even months to get your case heard, even if it was just a minor case. And so Moses wisely took some advice and he divided the people into smaller communities. We read about this in chapter 18. And he picked men of character from amongst the people and appointed them as judges over those communities like this man we're talking about today. But see, that still leaves one big problem. And the big problem is this. How are you supposed to be a judge when there are no laws, right? Like how do you, you make one decision, the judge down the street's going to make another decision? How do, you make, how do you make decisions when there are no laws? Well, that brings us to Exodus chapters 21 through 23 where God gives the people of Israel the first book of laws for the nation. If you were a judge, you know how lawyers have those big books on their shelves that have all the laws in it. Well, here's the first book on the shelf. After giving them the Ten Commandments, we looked at that last week. If you missed it, we encourage you to go online, our website, go check out our podcast, listen to that message about how God gave the Ten Commandments and what that was all about. But the Ten Commandments were God's baseline moral code. But now we have something that's slightly different. God is giving the people laws to govern this new society that he's establishing. These are a set of laws which, if they were followed, they would create a just and a fair and a compassionate society. Many of these laws don't apply to us today, clearly, as we've read some of them already. And yet, they do give us insight into the heart of God. In these three chapters, chapter 21, 22, 23, We've got, here's what we've got, we've got labor and employment laws, laws about murder and manslaughter and what's the difference and and violent assault. We have personal injury law. We have laws about liability for your animals and your property, theft and responsibility and restitution, treatment of disadvantaged people in society. We've got laws about rape and about dowries and we've got laws about loans and lending money and justice and equal standing before the law. See, these chapters make up the book that would have been given to the judges that the judges would pour over, they would memorize it, they would consult it when judging the cases and doing this job and this calling that God had given them. In verse 1 we read, these are the rules that you shall set before them. These were precedents, they were kind of what you might call case studies to guide Israel's magistrates in making decisions. And these laws, when we look at them, what we see is we see God's wisdom We see God's love, we see God's character, that he is a God who cares about justice and he cares about equity. One of the great themes that comes out of this, which by the way would have been absolutely revolutionary at the time it was given, is this, that all human life is valuable. All human life has value. This laid the foundation for what we today call human rights. It's found here. That no matter what your gender, no matter what your economic status, by the fact that you are a human being, your life has value. You are endowed with certain inalienable rights because you were created by God and you were created in the image of God and you bear His image. 
even a slave. You see, a slave in that society was the person on the lowest rung of the social, social economic strata. A value was even assigned to their life. They said, well, even a slave has value. If a slave's life is taken, it's going to cost, they have to put a price on it. Let's put a minimum price, 30 pieces of silver. That's the starting point. These are laws which demand kindness and compassion from the people of God. These are laws of justice and fairness which will be required of God's people. And as a result, God will be honored and the community will be blessed. These are laws which govern a new society. A new society of people who know God and who live differently than all the other people out there in the world. And this is where it starts. Verse 2. Where, when you buy a Hebrew slave... He shall serve six years, and in the seventh year he shall go free for nothing. The first 11 verses of this new set of laws for this new community of God's people, the first 11 verses deal with slaves. And I don't know about you, but that makes me a little bit uncomfortable. I'm not sure if I like that. It's kind of like, hey, wait a second, right? You're going to show me God's wisdom and love and and giving them laws to create a fair and just society and laying the foundation for human rights. And in the first 11 verses, they deal with how to treat your slaves? I mean, why, why doesn't it just say, um, from now on, there's no more slavery? Like, one verse, and we're done with it forever. Case closed. We can save everybody all the trouble. Never have to worry about that again. No slavery. Make it an 11th commandment. Of all the places to start, even, even if you're going to have slavery, of all the places to start in your new law, why start with this? You see, for us as Americans, for us even just as modern people today, it's very hard for us to read this without going through the filter of what slavery was in America or without thinking about the kind of slavery that still exists today with human trafficking and and prostitution. You know, slavery in America was, was a terrible, was a tragic chapter in our country's history. It's a great irony, right, that the people who came to this country seeking freedom, they somehow thought it was okay to capture people and take away their freedom and buy them and trade them and treat them like property. It's terrible. And one of the greatest tragedies is that many of those people at that time actually used the Bible to justify slavery. And I've had people say to me before, maybe you've heard these similar arguments. Well, you know, the Bible is all for slavery, right? Like the Bible condones slavery. I mean, look at the verses we just read. I've had people ask me, hey, why didn't God just go ahead and just condemn slavery right from the beginning and then we wouldn't have had to worry about all that? And that's why it's really important that we understand a few things from the outset. Again, context is super important. What did it mean for them? That's where we begin. Okay, that's why we'll start with a few things. First of all, a few things you should know if if you have similar questions about slavery. The Bible does, in fact, condemn slavery as it was practiced here in the United States. Do you know that? The Bible does condemn slavery in the way that it was practiced here in the United States. I've got a few verses for you up on the screen and in the, in the notes on your phone. Verse 16, in the same chapter, if you read on, it says this. Whoever steals a man and sells him, right? So capturing a person, selling them for money, and anyone found in possession, even possessing a slave, that person shall be put to death. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, slave trading, meaning capturing people, selling them, owning them, is listed among the most sinful practices alongside murder. 
So the Bible does condemn slavery as it was practiced here in the United States in this sense of slavery, you know, forced slavery according to race and for lifetime. See, it was Christians even who, who led the abolitionist movements in the British Empire and, and here in the United States. So what is this that we're talking about today? What's being described here in these 11 verses is not slavery in the way we generally think of it. It's what we would rather call indentured servitude, which was not based on race. Uh, it, was, uh, it was not based on one people group being superior to another people group. It was a mutually agreed upon situation, which was for a limited duration, and it was highly regulated. Now, that still begs the question. Somebody might still ask, yeah, but still, why didn't God just say, no slavery? Like, get it done with. Like, why not just do that? And there's actually a very good reason for that, which is what we're going to talk about here at the beginning. The reason is because indentured servitude actually served a lot of very good purposes in that society. And it actually helped people, especially people who were poor and especially people who had been the victim of crimes. And so to get rid of this would have actually hurt those people rather than help them. So see, context is so important. And it's hard for us to do because of, you know, what has happened in our own country and what we know of slavery in the world today. But as hard as it is to do, I want to, help, I want to ask you to try to understand what this meant for them. There were four basic reasons why a Hebrew person might become a slave or a servant of another Hebrew person. We have four reasons for you. The first one was this. It was a way of escaping poverty. A way of escaping poverty. In cases of extreme poverty, if I can't provide for my wife and my kids, what am I going to do? Right? There's no welfare system, there's no social safety net, there's nothing to fall back on. There's no nonprofits out there that help people, right? There's, there's nothing, none of that. So you, you've fallen on hard times, what are you going to do? Well, here's what you would do. You'd see a wealthy person in your community and you see how they're living. And so you would go and you would, you would knock on their door and you'd ask to speak with them and, and you'd say, Hi, my name's Nick, uh, I've got a wife and a couple of kids and I, I can't feed them. I mean, I get work sometimes, but it's not consistent, and I can't put food on the table, and my family's suffering for it, and, and I just want to ask you, I see that you, you know, you have stuff, and you have a property, you've probably got a lot of work. I want to offer that if you would be willing to take us in and provide shelter for us and food and maybe some basic necessities, then I would be your servant. You know, I'll do whatever you need done around here, whether it's odd jobs or, or feeding the animals or painting or whatever. You know, we just need some help getting our feet back under us. You see, God didn't abolish this kind of slavery, or his indentured servitude rather, because this provided a way for people to escape poverty. This wasn't exploitative, right? It wasn't exploiting people, rather it's just the opposite. It was compassionate. It was actually empowering people to get out from under the crushing burden of poverty. But here's what God did do. He said, okay, there's this practice. I'm going to put parameters on this practice. I'm going to prevent the poor in this practice from being taken advantage of. In Leviticus chapter 25, verses 39 and 40, here's what it says. It says, if your brother, now again, that term, brother, if your brother becomes poor beside you and he sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and as a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee. In the year of Jubilee, all the slaves, all the indentured servants were set free. And so there was a provision in there to ensure that no one would be held against their will as a slave for life. This kind of agreement was what we would generally think of maybe even as apprenticeship, right? 
You weren't supposed to treat this person as a slave. You were to treat them as a hired worker. You were to pay them a wage and you were to teach them a trade. So in other words, you're not using this person. You're not exploiting this person. Rather, you're actually helping this person. You're, you're getting them out of poverty and you're helping them get on their feet and giving them some skills that they're able to take somewhere else and work with. And you were to view that person as a brother, not as somebody who was any bit less than you. This was a contractual agreement for a limited period of time to help a person who had fallen on hard times. And notice what it tells us here in Exodus chapter 21. You were to treat this person so well that the end of this duration of time in which they were your servant, the end of their contract that they would say, I don't want to leave. I love it here. You've been so good to me. Can't me and my family stay with you? Can we just make this a permanent arrangement? Because that's how good you've treated me. That was the goal. That's how you were supposed to treat them. Okay, the second reason why this kind of indentured servitude took place, uh, another reason for it was if you had a daughter to be married. And again, this gets to the idea of poverty as well. See, in the ancient world, and even until quite recent times in some cultures, you, you had to pay a dowry in order to get your daughter married. And so in our day, we have a tradition that the bride's family pays for the wedding. It's kind of similar. I personally think it should be the other way around, right? Like I've got two daughters, and here's how I feel about it. If I'm supposed to give my daughter away to somebody, and she's going to take his name, and I have to pay for it? I don't think so. I think that that guy should be paying me, right? Uh, I mean, I just don't like the system, but I don't know. I mean, that's just how it is. So if you are a poor person, though, and you've got daughters, and you don't have the money to pay a dowry, that's bad news for your daughters because it means that maybe she's not going to get married, which was a very difficult fate in a society like that where women didn't have the abilities now like they do to go and get jobs and take care of themselves. Or, or the other option is she'd have to marry somebody who is maybe, you know, kind of weird or creepy or, you know, something bad. And so it was really bad for your daughter if you could not pay a dowry. And so as a poor person, you know, you're in a tight Straight because you're like, I don't want my daughter to have to suffer for my poverty. And so there was this provision, which is actually outlined in verses 7 through 11. If you were poor and you couldn't afford to pay a dowry for your daughter so she could get married, there's a provision that the family she's marrying into would bring her in and she would serve as a servant in their household and she would work for the equivalent of a dowry. Now that might not sound very romantic to you, but you know what else isn't romantic? is poverty, right? So this was a way of helping people to escape from poverty. So that, too, again, if you were born into a poor family, you wouldn't just be locked into poverty for generations, like these cycles of poverty, with no way of escaping. You know, there's a lot of talk in our day, and rightly so, about cycles of poverty and institutionalized poverty. You see, if a person's born in a poor family, they grew up in a poor neighborhood, and that affects the, school, that affects the schools they can go to. It affects the things that they're surrounded by growing up. And it can be very difficult to break out of these cycles of poverty, especially in certain countries of the world. If you travel, you've been to you know, poorer countries, you know this is the case. You can't just tell somebody, hey, you just need to work harder, and then you won't be poor anymore. No, see, the structures of society, the way things are set up, are set up in such a way that the poor will always be poor and the rich will have a hard, I mean, they'll always be rich. It's, it's just kind of set up that way because there's no opportunity for people to break out of that cycle of poverty and to improve their situation no matter how hard they work. And so here in God's law, there was a provision. There were many provisions designed to help people escape 
poverty. There were also protections for the girl who was in this situation. If you look at verses 8, 9, and 10, here's basically what it says. This girl was to be brought into this home and she was to be treated with full rights as a daughter. And if the person decided not to marry her or you know, maybe he wanted her to marry his son uh, then, and it didn't work out, he had to send her back to her home. And verse 10 says if she came from a poor family and you know, there's nothing for her to go back to, well then they were required to keep her in the house and to provide for her food, clothing, and rights as a f- member of the family. And if they failed to do those things, then she was to leave the house and she would owe them nothing. The third reason was for bankruptcy. If you got in over your head, you, you made a deal and you couldn't pay or you lost your job or something and you owe a debt but you can't pay it off, then they wouldn't put you in debtor's prison. Instead, they, instead of having a prison system, they said, no, instead of locking people up, they said, here's what our system's going to be. You're going to work it off. That's only fair to the contract that you agreed to. The fourth reason was restitution for a crime. And this is talked a lot more about in the next chapter, in chapter 22. For example, in Exodus 22, verses 3 and 4, it says this, if somebody steals something from you, and by the time that they get caught, they've already gotten rid of the thing that they stole from you, whether that was an animal or, or whatever it might be, then they were supposed to work for you to make restitution for the loss and the damages that they caused. And if you say, uh, excuse me, but I don't really want the guy who stole my car to work at my house, the judge would say, that makes a lot of sense. So here's what we're going to do. They would sell that person then as a slave and someone could purchase them. And, and they said, well, we got to come up with a price for that. I mean, at least a minimum price for something like that. And they said, okay, the minimum price is 30 pieces of silver. And so you would get the 30 pieces of silver to pay for your car that got stolen, right? And that person would go and they would work off their debt as the judge assigned them. You know, you stole something small, it's going to be this amount of time. If you stole something big, it's going to be up to seven years. And in the seventh year, they'd go free. So again, the point is this. This kind of slavery was very different than how we tend to think of slavery and how it was practiced in our country. This slavery was not about exploitation. It was rather about compassion This kind of slavery wasn't about subjugation of other people. It was about empowering people. This kind of slavery was chosen. It was mutually arranged. It was of a limited duration and it was highly regulated. It might be put on you by a judge for a time, but it was for a limited duration and it was highly regulated. And it was done in such a way, again, that at the end of it, the goal was that the person would say, I don't want to leave. I realize I'm free to go free now, but I don't want to leave. These have been the best years of my life. In fact, I'll go so far as to say this. The abolition of slavery as we think of it actually began here in Exodus chapter 21 in the law of Moses. Because there in verse 16, God condemns the capturing and selling of another person. And it's here that God says that there will be no such thing as forced lifelong servitude. And here where God says that every person, no matter their race, gender, economic status, every person has intrinsic value. G. Campbell Morgan, he said this. He said, henceforward, the condition of slaves among the Hebrew people would be, marked in a, would be in marked distinction to slavery as existing among other peoples. Alan Cole then continues, he says, this new humanitarian approach would ultimately be the death knell of slavery. But it still begs the question, okay, well, maybe this existed, but of all places to start, right? I mean, you're writing a legal code, this is a new society, why would you start with laws about slaves? I mean, 
Why is this the first thing that's mentioned as new law for this new society of people who are in covenant relationship with God? It's kind of weird, right? Well, it's only weird until you put yourself in their shoes. Imagine yourself standing at the foot of that mountain, two million people, and just three months ago, where did you come from? You came from Egypt where you were slaves, right? And now they've been brought out of slavery, and now they have a new master, God. And the first thing that God wants to address with them in this new law, he wants to address basic human rights. He wants to address value for all human life. He wants to talk about the protection of the poor, the protection of the destitute in society. He wants to talk about justice and equity. And he says, I won't allow you to do what the Egyptians did to you. There are reasons for people becoming servants and people taking servants. And they're actually very good reasons, but it's got to be regulated so that it will be empowering rather than exploiting This freedom that they've been given is going to change the way that they live. Okay, so if that's what it meant for them, the next question is, what does it mean for us? How does this apply to us? In Ephesians chapter 1, the Bible tells us this, that Jesus redeemed us by his blood. That we've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. Now that sounds very churchy, doesn't it? But, But it's very important. You know what it means? That word redeem, it's actually a very unique word for the person who would have heard that, especially in the ancient world. The person who would have heard that word, they would have caught the correlation of what redeem means. Redeem referred actually to this. Here's a, here's a definition for it. Liberation produced by the payment of a ransom. It was actually used in regard to purchasing a slave in order to set them free. The word redeem. They're saying Jesus purchased us by his blood in order to set us free. That's the message. Again, redemption, it means liberation procured by the payment of a ransom. And it paints this vivid picture, which, which actually very much draws on what we're talking about here in Exodus, that in the ancient world, if a person owed a debt and they were unable to pay that debt, then they would have to become a slave until they could either work off their debt or in very rare cases, someone might step in and pay that debt for them. Maybe they have a wealthy family member or someone who could come in and they could pay that debt. In which case, that person would be redeemed. They would be released from that and they would be set free. And what the Bible is telling us is that this is what Jesus did for us. Every one of us, me, you, we owe an enormous debt that we have no way of paying off. Absolutely no chance of ever paying it off. No matter how hard we might try, no matter how long, we'll never be able to pay it off. We could never work it off in a million years. And as a result, we're not free. You see, God gave us life, but we sinned against Him. We've fallen short of what He called us to be. And as a result, we're enslaved. And we have no hope of ever being able to pay off this debt and make it right. We're stuck. We're trapped. We're even condemned. But Jesus, because of his great love for us, he stepped in and he paid that price for us because he was the only one who had that kind of capital to be able to pay such a great debt. But in order to do so, what did it cost him? It cost him everything. It cost him his very life. See, this is the message of the gospel, that your debt Your sin is so great that nothing less than the death of God himself could pay that price. And at the same time, the message of the gospel is this, that God loves you. He loves you so much that he was willing to do that for you. 
He was willing to give everything for you. And he has done it in Jesus on the cross. He redeemed you by his blood, his life given for you to pay your debt and set you free. But here's the thing. Are you really free? Are you really free? So here's, here's what it says also in the Bible. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and 7, Paul the Apostle says two times in two chapters, do you not know that you are not your own? Do you not know that you're not your own? Because you were bought. You were purchased with a price, a great price. And he says, therefore, glorify God with your life. So wait a second here. What's Paul saying? He's saying Jesus redeemed us. So we're free, right? He redeemed us by paying our debt. And now, Paul's saying, now we belong to him. We have a new master, a good master, but a master still. Now maybe you say, wait a second, just hang on. Does that mean that we are now slaves to him? Turn with me, if you have your Bible with you, turn with me to the Gospel of John chapter 15. John chapter 15, Gospel of John. Jesus is having his last meal with his disciples. In just a few hours from now, he's going to be arrested. He's been betrayed by one of his closest friends and confidants the person who's been with him for three years. He's brought him into the inner circle and now this person has betrayed him. This person has sold him out for a price of 30 pieces of silver. 30 pieces of silver. Why does that ring a bell? I don't know. Maybe you know. The other place that's mentioned, 30 pieces of silver. Where is that mentioned? 1,400 years beforehand, it was mentioned in the book of Exodus when they said we've got to put a price, a minimum price on life, and here's what it's going to be. 30 pieces of silver, that's the price for taking the life of a servant. You know what Jesus is saying? He's saying, I am becoming that servant. I will become the servant. I will take your place, and I will pay that debt for you. But before that happens, here he is. He's having this last meal with his disciples. Three years together has now culminated in this moment. And during this dinner, he tells them this. He says, guys, greater love has no one than this. That someone would lay down his life for his friends. Then he says this. No longer do I call you my servants. For a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I call you my friends. Because all that, I have for, all that I've heard from my Father, I've made it known to you. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I'm going to pay off your debt. I'm going to take your place. I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to purchase you with my life. And you will be mine. But instead of calling you my servants, I'm going to call you my friends. I'm setting you free. You know, we've titled this series, Be Set Free, and that's what we've been talking about each week, about this incredible freedom that we have because of Jesus. The question is, though, for you and for me, here's the question. What are you going to do with that freedom? Right? You've been granted this incredible freedom. What are you going to do with it? Here's the irony. Paul the Apostle says, we can take that freedom we've been given, he says in, in Romans chapter 6. It's possible to take that freedom you've been given and use it in such a way that you end up back in slavery, that you end up in bondage once again. It's possible to use your freedom in a way that leads you back into bondage. Here's what Paul the Apostle says. He says, whatever you serve, whatever you live for, you're, you'll be a slave to that thing. 
So what are we supposed to do with this freedom that we've been given in Jesus so that we don't end up going back into bondage and back into slavery once again? In, in Romans chapter 1, verse 1, Paul the Apostle is writing this letter. And he's uh, thinking, how am I going to begin this letter to these Christians who live in Rome? You know, how am I going to start this letter? So maybe he jots down a few things. You know, Paul, big time missionary and apostle. No, no, that doesn't sound sound very good. That's not a good way to start this letter. These people don't really know me. All right, I say, Paul, author of several books of the Bible. That'll really make him like me, right? He says, no, no, that doesn't seem like a good idea. Here we go. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus. A bondservant. Well, I, thought we were, I thought you were his friend. Why are you calling yourself a bondservant? When, when Peter writes his letter, how does Peter begin? Peter, Remember the guy who walked on water? Peter, Jesus' favorite disciple? Well, probably not. That might have been John or one of the other guys. But Peter says, I know. Here's how I'll begin the letter. Peter, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. James and Jude, when they write their letters, how do they introduce themselves? James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And the people who read this understand they would have said, wait a second. Didn't Jesus say that, that we're his friends now, not his servants? Didn't he say that we have freedom? Why would you call yourself a bondservant? Well, what's a bondservant? Well, I'm glad you, we uh, studied Exodus chapter 21. If you can come back there with me or open your Bible, Exodus chapter 21, beginning in verse 5. We read it earlier. We're going to read it again. It says this. But if the slave, the slave who's been set free, plainly says, I love my master and I love my wife and my children and I will not go free. Then his master shall bring him to God and he shall bring him to the door of the, or the doorpost and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl. You know what an awl is? I have one here. This is an awl. It's super pointy. And, uh, and it's like, kind of like an ice pick, right? So what you would do is you take this, this servant and you take him to the doorpost and you try to get it right the first time, right? You put it on his earlobe and whack! Drive it through his ear as a sign, as a symbol. It's, a, it's the seventh year, it's time to go free. And you walk him to the edge of your property and in all honesty, you're kind of sad to see him go, I mean, because you know that he, he, uh, he probably doesn't have a lot to go back to, really. I mean, you know where he came from. You know that he doesn't have anything really to go back to. You've, you've taught him some things. You've prepared him. He's probably going to do fine now, finding work and making a living and providing for his family. But honestly, you're going to miss having him around. And as you get to the end of the road, it leads to the, the main road there. The servant looks out, and it's almost like he's looking back and remembering where he's come from. And you tell him, okay, seven years, man. It's up. You're free to go. And he turns back to you and says, but I don't want to go. I don't want to go. You've been good to me. I love you. Look, look at what you've done for my family. Look at what you've done for me. We've had it so well here. I want to stay. I'll, I'll be your servant forever. This is the best possible life that I can even imagine. Being under your roof, working with you, serving you. That's what I want to do for the rest of my life. And you say, are you sure? This is going to hurt a little. I mean, have you seen one of these things? And it's probably not even as sharp as this one. And he says, no, that's what I want to do. And so you'd say, okay, so you go get the judge, and the judge would come, and he'd say, all right, man, I mean, you have uh, immunity of the court, right? You can tell me, is this really what you want to do? And he'd say, yeah, this is what I want. And he says, okay, come and stand next to the doorpost. It's going to hurt a little bit. He says, all right, just try and, try and get it right the first time, right? And so, whack! 
A bondservant was a slave by choice. It was a person who had been granted their freedom, and then they used that freedom to freely choose to become a servant for life because they loved their master, because serving their master wasn't oppressive, it wasn't exploitative, it was wonderful, it was life-giving. And for Peter and Paul and for James and Jude, this is what it meant to be a Christian. It meant to be a bondservant. It meant taking the freedom that they'd been given in Christ and saying, I want to use my freedom to serve Him forever because He's been so good to me. Because I can remember where I've come from, what He saved me from. I don't want to go back to that. That's bondage. There's nothing else I would rather do with my life. There's nothing that I could ever imagine in life that would be so meaningful and fulfilling and life-giving than to serve Him all the rest of my days. Now you might ask, who in their right mind, after being granted freedom, would give up their freedom and become uh, in that kind of situation, right? But you know what's interesting is that many secular writers, not even Christian writers, many secular writers have noted that one of the main times that this kind of situation happens, when people are willingly give up their freedom, is uh, for certain situations. One of them is, for example, for a career. I mean, people give up their freedom of their own volition all the time for a career, for a family. I don't know if you've had kids, but if you had kids, you know that you kind of give up all your freedom when you have kids, right? If you have a job and you like how much that job pays you, except you got to work 50, 60 hours a week. In other words, you're going to give up your freedom in order to have that job and you're going to do it willingly. If there's something that you want that bad, you will be willing to give up your freedom and at the end you'll say, I did it of my own volition and it was totally worth it. Another example, maybe the best example, is when people are in love. They give up their freedom. You know, marriage, if you're single, you're kind of free to go and do whatever you want, whenever you want. You can spend your money however you feel like. But then you meet someone and you get committed to them and then suddenly you don't have any more freedom and you might be 40 years old, but you've got to call up and ask for permission if you want to go somewhere, right? Like, oh, uh, hey, honey, I, uh, we're just, uh, just going to go down and we're just going to hang out with the guys a little bit. Uh, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, that's fine. I'll be home in a few minutes. Uh, I, don't, I don't need to go. Right, like, oh, honey, hey, uh, I found that thing that I've been wanting to buy, and it's on sale, and I thought maybe I could buy it. What do you think? Uh, yeah, no, no problem. I can wait until Christmas. That'll be fine, right? You're 40 years old. You have a job. You're making money, and you still have to ask for permission. You've clearly given up your freedom. Now, who in their right mind would do something like that? Well, someone who's in love. That's who. Because they would say to you, yeah, I gave up my freedom, but do you know what I get to go home to? Do you know the, the support and the encouragement that this relationship has given me for all these years? It's more than worth it. There's nothing more I want. You see, here's the deal. Everyone is mastered by something. The freedom you have is in choosing what you will be mastered by. Everyone's mastered by something. Here's your freedom, choosing what you will be mastered by. And there's only one way to be truly free, and that is using your freedom to become a bondservant of Jesus Christ. In John chapter 8, Jesus is talking to a group of people. And here's what he says. We'll finish with this. He says, If you abide in me, or I'm sorry, if you abide in my word, then you are my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered him. They said, Boy, we are offspring of Abraham. We've, we've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say that you will become free? And Jesus is saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever, but the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, then you will be free indeed. Here's what Jesus is saying. He comes to this group of people. He says, I'm going to bring truth into your life. It's going to set you free. And they say, 
well, wait a second. We don't need you to set us free. We're already free. And Jesus says, are you? He says, I promise you, you're not free. You're a slave to something. I promise you that. You might be a slave to your pride. You're a slave to success. You're a slave to the American dream. You're a slave to lust and desires. You're a slave to what other people think about you. You're a slave to comfort. You're a slave to security. All of these things are are, are masters which you serve and which will absolutely, if you serve them, they will absolutely disappoint you and they will absolutely crush you and they will make you their slave. But Jesus says, I've come to set you free, truly. I became the perfect servant for you in order to take your place and to pay your debt. And the way to be truly free is to become a bondservant, is to make me your master. This is the essence of what it means to be a Christian. It means that Jesus has paid your debt. He set you free. And when you really understand that, what he's done for you, how much he has loved you, and what he offers you in a relationship with him, it calls you to turn and to use the freedom that he's given you and say, because of all that you've done for me, there's nothing I want more than to serve you all the rest of my life. And it's in giving your life to him who gave his life for you that you experience true joy, true fulfillment, and true freedom, both now and forever. And I encourage you to do that today. Would you please stand with me and we'll pray. Lord, we thank you for the freedom that you have given us in Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you set us free from the debt of sin that we owed. Thank you, Lord, that you made us free And now, Lord, I pray for all of us in here that we would come to that place today where we would understand that gospel message so much that we would say there's nothing I want more in life than to use my freedom to become a slave by choice, a servant of Jesus Christ for the rest of my days because you gave your life for me and it is my pleasure and my honor to give my life for you. Lord, would you do that work in our hearts and our lives today? In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series, Be Set Free, a study of the book of Exodus. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.